At the moment we're dealing with the latter part of Mark's Gospel and what is essentially the aftermath of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will know as we have been studying that there were those that came to the tomb and they found the stone was rolled away from the door of the tomb. There was an angel sitting there. In fact, one of the other Gospels records that there were two angels. And a message was given that in the first place was a message of great comfort to Mary Magdalene. We see this message as it is recorded for us in Mark chapter 16 and verse 6. He saith unto them, Be not affrighted. Ye seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. Look and see. He's not here. He's risen, just as he told you he would. And that message was a message that brought comfort, that gave comfort to Mary. We talked about the despair that she manifested. And we learn of that in John chapter 20. She was weeping and crying thought that somebody had come and taken the body of her Lord away. There was, of course, also the difficulty that she met. When she and the other women came to the tomb, there was the stone that needed to be rolled away, or so they thought. But when they got there, according to verse 4, when they looked, they saw that the stone was rolled away, for it was very great. The Lord had already taken care of the problem in advance. And of course there was the discovery she made therefore. Not only that the stone was removed, but that the Savior was missing. But she did not at that point realize the significance at the time. The stone was rolled away, however, and it was not to let the Savior out, but it was to let us in to see that he was already out. That's the truth. But there was great gloom in Mary's heart that day. There was physical darkness when she came to the tomb. There was spiritual darkness, I think, as well, to some degree in her heart because of the despair, because of the despondency and the discouragement of thinking that Jesus was dead and his body was missing. But that despair turned to great hope and joy when the Lord spoke to her, the angel first of all, but then the Lord himself met her and great comfort was given to Mary. Then we talked about the confidence that was given to his disciples. We spoke of the absence, a missing body. There's no doubt when the angel said he is not here, he was speaking the truth. The tomb was empty, but of course that was no evidence in itself that he had risen from the dead. The only thing that the tomb could say was that he was not there. And so some people invented a story that his body was stolen and taken away someplace else. But there's never been the production of a body. There's never been anyone who's able to say this is the body of Jesus. A missing body, that absence, is a great evidence in itself of the resurrection. There's the assurance we talk about, a message that was brought. Again, we're back to verse 6. And the angel speaking there, A brief but very specific message. 
He says, you're looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified? He's not here. He's risen. Just as he said. And then we have the appearances the Master beheld. You can look at verse 9 and verse 12 and verse 14. And first of all, he appeared to Mary Magdalene. Then in verse 12, two of them as they traveled. That's the two on the road to Emmaus. And in verse 14, he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat. And when you come to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15, you'll discover that there were a lot more than that who saw the Lord after his resurrection. He appeared to above 500 brethren at once on one occasion. Taking over the whole record of the resurrection, there are 11 appearances of the Lord. Though Mark limits his words to three. And these were very significant to the people concerned. And not least, Peter. The Lord had a special word for Peter. Peter the backslider. Peter the denier of the Lord. And the message that was given in verse 7 was very significant. Go your way, tell his disciples and Peter. It's almost as though Peter is being spoken of in distinction from the disciples. It's as if he's not a disciple. Tell the disciples and Peter. There is a a very real inference there that there's a highlighting of the denial of Peter. He's left the apostolic office, so to speak, by his denial of Christ. He doesn't know the Lord, apparently. But the Lord still has mercy for him. Even though he's failed the Lord, the Lord has mercy for him. And so there's a message. Tell the disciples and Peter. Don't forget to tell Peter. Because I'm going to bless him again. But it's a wonderful truth, the truth of the resurrection. And there are many, many evidences for it, as we could note, but we'll leave for another time. But in light of the resurrection, there's not only the comfort that was given to Mary, and also this word that was a great encouragement to the disciples, in that it gave them confidence. But in light of the resurrection, there's also here, and we find it in Mark 16, The commission given to the church. And I'm thinking, of course, of the words that are often referred to as the Great Commission. Very brief, as they are in Mark, they appear in verse 15. The words of Jesus, And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And then in connection with that, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. You can compare those words with Matthew chapter 28. Matthew gives his version of the commission from verse 18 to verse 20 of that final chapter. Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and on earth. The word means all authority. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. And the margin is very good in that it really suggests or make disciples 
or Christians of all nations. That's what the work of the church is. Go and teach all nations or make Christians or make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. The Great Commission. This is the Lord's message to the whole church. For the whole world. During the whole age. And I want you to think about this. These are some of the last words that Jesus spoke on any subject when he was upon the earth. The last topic, if you like, that our Lord talked about was Christian missions. It was evangelism. It was preaching the gospel. That's how important it is. Now, after the Savior reprimanded the disciples for their unbelief and affirmed his resurrection, you can see this in verse 14, he didn't leave them. He didn't say, now you bunch of unbelieving men, I'm not going to use you anymore, I'm done with you. You failed me miserably. In the hour of my need, you ran away. So that's it, you're done. No, that's not what the Lord did. That's not what he said. He employed those very same individuals for the greatest mission on the earth. Taking the gospel message to every creature. Now remember what we're dealing with here. This is only a small band of frightened men. There are 11 of the disciples left. Judas has already gone out. There's 11 of those that the Lord had chosen left. There are other people obviously, who believed on the Lord. There's the two that were on the road to Emmaus. There's Mary Magdalene and those other ladies that we mentioned who were at the tomb. The, the disciples were not the only believers at this point. But they were the only ministers that the Lord had appointed at the time with a great mission. And as one pointed out, they were men without any political influence. They had no religious authority or clout, they had no financial base, and they had no academic prestige. In fact, on one occasion, they were referred to as ignorant and unlearned men. Some of them fishermen, others with other trades. And of course, they were up against the political might of Rome, the awful bigotry of the Jewish nation, and the skepticism of the Greeks, the Gentiles. But to these men, the Lord Jesus Christ said, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. I'm giving you a commission. I'm giving you a work to do. And of course, this work that the Lord gave them to do is a continuing work. And the words that the Lord spoke to the original eleven disciples are for the whole church, for the whole age, as I suggested a moment ago. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That is the Lord's commission given to the church. It's been called the Great Commission. 
I would say it's the greatest possible commission that you could be given. But there are a number of reasons for that. And I agree with my brother, Reverend Victor Maxwell, who was a missionary in Brazil for many, many years, and one who knew all about putting the Great Commission into action in his life. He said the Great Commission is so called because it fulfills the greatest mission. It is so called because it's fueled by the greatest motive. And it is so called because it furthers the greatest message. That's a tremendous outline. I couldn't improve on it, so I'm not going to try. So I will use it. And I'll say, first of all, this is the greatest possible commission because it fulfills the greatest possible mission. What is that mission? It's worldwide evangelism. Go ye into all the world. And a few verses later we read in verse 20, And they went forth and preached everywhere. April the 14th, 1912 was a very dark night for my home city. In fact, the area of the city from which I come, East Belfast. The Titanic, the greatest vessel ever built, was built in our Harland and Wolfe shipyard in Belfast. It was largely men from Belfast who built that vessel. There was a man from there who designed the vessel. It was launched before it took its maiden voyage. It was launched from Belfast Lock, a place that I know very well. It made its way over to England and eventually sailed from Southampton. And we all know what happened to the Titanic. It's one of the most famous stories now in history for the last over 100 years. April 14th, 1912 was a dark night for the city of Belfast as well as many other cities because it was the night that the Titanic sank on her maiden voyage. There is a fantastic museum in Belfast in the Titanic Quarter. If you ever had an opportunity to visit there, I think you can go online and see some of it. But if you ever were able to go and visit, it's quite something. And it's very moving to see the accounts of people who survived that awful tragedy that night. Some of the survivors who escaped from the sunken vessel on her maiden voyage were appalled by the fact that there were people scrambling to be saved who did not care at all who else was lost. There were those who, despite the charge, women and children only, or women and children first, males who clambered over the top of women and children to get into those lifeboats. They didn't care who else was lost. 
Nearby to the Titanic that night, there was another ship with its radio turned off. The ship was called the Californian. And those on that ship said that if they had received the message, the alarm, they could not have gone because, quote, in the darkness of the night, we feared icebergs and were lying motionless for this reason. We banked our fires and had no steam up. So there was a vessel that could have been ready to go, ready to save a lot more than those who were saved, less than one third of the passengers. But they were not ready. And they didn't go. It has been pointed out that that is the story of the Christian church largely there's no fire no power and many in the church who may be keen to preach but not so many who are keen to go it was the reverend Dr. Ron Cook who said in recent years I do not read in my Bible be willing to go and preach the gospel But in my Bible it says, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. It's not just a case of being willing to do it, we're to do it. So we can't divorce the preaching from the going. One of our hymns says, who will go and work today in those fields that are vast where people are perishing? Who will go? Whom shall I send and who will go for us? That was the question that came to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. A preacher said one time, if you look at the word gospel, it begins with go. And if you separate the go from the rest of the word, you're left with a spell. And he said, that's the way some people are in the Christian church. They're under a spell. It seems because there's an unwillingness to go. parting commission that the Lord gave to his apostles in addressing them for the last time was go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So the Lord's telling us here about a great need. And the great need is the same all over this globe. Men are sinful, they're corrupt, they're alienated from God. And whether we want to regard people as civilized or uncivilized, and I'm not really sure whether there's a great deal of distinction between many in our own country and many in the third world where that's concerned. Some of the things I see belonged in the jungle, quite frankly. But man by nature is everywhere the same. He's without knowledge. He's without faith. He's without love for God. And whenever you and I see a child of Adam's race, whatever his color, whatever his background, we're looking at one who has a wicked heart and who needs the blood of Christ and the renewing of the Holy Ghost to make him a new creature. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every 
creature. Is this not the greatest possible mission? The Lord Jesus, you will see, would have us know that the salvation that's in the gospel is to be offered freely to all men. All the world. Every creature. There's to be no distinction as far as the offer of mercy is concerned. And I'm really glad that I can preach the gospel in a nutshell, which is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And we have no justification for withholding the gospel from any group of people anywhere in the world. We have no warrant for limiting the gospel offered to the elect. Perhaps we have thought before of William Carey, often referred to as the father of modern missions, in his hometown where William Carey was a cobbler, he was a shoemaker. He belonged to a ministerial association, I believe it was in Northampton. And that ministerial association was full of men who we would consider to be hyper-Calvinists, or at least ultra-Calvinists. And William Carey began to get very burdened about the fact that England and Britain generally was engaged in trade with places like India. A lot of goods and services were going from Great Britain to India. There's a lot of trade back and forth, even of Indian stuff coming to the UK. Tea, for example. And William Carey made the suggestion, well, if we're going to be trading with these people, couldn't we take the Bible to them? Couldn't we take the Gospel to them? Couldn't we take missionaries to them? Couldn't we seek to bring Gospel light that we have to darkened India? And the chairman of the Northampton Ministers Association is reported to have stood up when William Carey was in full flight speaking. And he said, young man, sit down. When God is ready to save the heathen, he will do so without consulting you or me. And from that point, William Carey was pretty much done with that bunch. Because he realized that God has already spoken to us in his word about what our responsibility is. And so not only was William Carey one who was willing to undertake trade with India, he volunteered to go to that country and be a missionary. He did go. And his work, along with Marshman and Ward, is legendary in their translation of the scriptures into all manner of Indian dialects. Of course, for the first seven or eight years, I don't think Kerry had one convert, not one. And there were those who would have thought, well, you're only wasting your time over there. Seven years, and there's nothing in your prayer letters about people getting saved and churches getting started? What are you doing over there? Before William Kerry's ministry was over in India, not only were there multitudes of Christians, not only were there multitudes of churches but there were 25 seminaries 
for teaching the gospel to ministers who would go out through that country preaching the word. Listen, we, as as old J.C. Ryle said, we come short of the fullness of Christ's words and we take away from the breadth of his sayings if we shrink from telling anyone God is full of love to you, Christ is willing to save you. Whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. But brother, don't you believe in sovereignty? Yes. Don't you believe in sovereign election? Yes. I also believe that God will save those whom he has purposed to save through the use of means. By the preaching of the gospel. And when we throw out the gospel net, the net will be full of fishes of every kind. But that's how the fish will be caught. As we took as our motto text for this year, you may remember. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. This is it. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. It is the greatest possible mission that we could be involved in. Someone said God only had one son. And he sent them as a missionary. He left heaven's glory. Came into this sin-cursed earth. To save men. In these words of Christ you have the strongest argument in favour of missions at home and abroad. And the Christian church needs to be engaged in this work. If you cannot cross the ocean and the heathen lands explore, you can find the heathen nearer. You can find them at your door. That's what the hymn says. We, not, we might not be able to go to China or India or some of these foreign countries. But we will find that there are people within reach of our own door who are in darkness. And we ought to understand as well here that when the Lord said what he said, he was talking about not only the greatest possible mission, but the Great Commission is fueled by the greatest possible motive. What is our motive for going into all the world? Well, first of all, it's the command of Christ. It's something that is commanded. It's not an option. It's commanded. Go ye is the word of Christ. But we know that there's got to be some motivation for what we do. Why do we do what we do as Christians? When you are working alongside somebody who's not saved or you're sharing a railway compartment or a seat beside somebody on an airplane or whatever it might be, What is it that causes you to have this feeling in your soul? I would like to speak to this person about the Lord. I hope you do have feelings like that. I hope that's something that does cross your mind. I would like to share the gospel with this person. I may find it difficult to bring up the subject, so I might just take a little leaflet or a tract out of my pocket and hand it to them. And then that leaflet can do the talking for me. It's easy to do. 
But of course, our own flesh and the old devil will try to stop us. We need to be praying for blood-bought opportunities to reach people with the gospel. And you never know how just a little word in season could be used of God. Do you know how John Bunyan was converted? I was sharing this with somebody recently. There were a group of women standing at a corner, at a window, gossiping. But you know what they were gossiping about? How they were saved. They were talking about the gospel, talking about Christ. He overheard them, and as a result of that, came to know the Savior. The Lord can use you, and the greatest possible motive for reaching people with the gospel is what Paul outlined in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ, and I should Underline that he's talking not about his love for Christ merely, but Christ's love for him. That's what he's referring to. For the love of Christ, Christ's love for me and for sinners, constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and so on. He's speaking here about his ministry, about what it is that motivates him in ministry, And he says, it's the love of Christ that constraineth us. That's what moves us. That's what causes us to do what we do. The love that Christ has for for me and for sinners generally. And the word there that's translated constraineth is a word that's used in the Gospels of when the Lord constrained his disciples to get into the ship to go to the other side of the lake. He virtually pushed them on board. Get on the ship. In a sense, he forced them to get on to that boat. The love of Christ constraineth me. Is that not the greatest possible motive for reaching men? I mentioned the other day about a great cricketer who just sadly passed away. But he was not, certainly during his life anyway, a believer. But a forerunner of his in England was a very famous cricketer called C.T. Studd. He was a brilliant sportsman, brilliant cricketer. And uh, he gave up a career, if you could call it giving it up, to become a missionary. C.T. Studd could have made, for that day and age, A lot of money. But he forsook that life. That he might go to China, to India, and to Africa in turn to preach the gospel. Here's what C.T. Studd said. Very famous saying. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for Him. Is that how we feel? The love of Christ constraineth us. Of course, we could look at other motives for preaching the gospel. There's a lost world that's waiting for that gospel. 
Christ is returning soon. Our lives will soon be over. Every birthday that comes reminds us of that. Time's passing on. And our own love for souls that God has placed within our hearts motivates us. I talk about the love of Christ for us, but we are to show our love to Christ by obeying his word, by obeying his great commission. Love for the lost should motivate us to press on in service. You know, it's very easy to quit. That's the easiest thing in the world to do is to quit. To stop. Give up. The world hates quitters. And we shouldn't be quitters as the Lord's people either. In Scotland there was a great preacher, I believe it was George Matheson, who one day was standing in the city of Glasgow was standing by a street lamp, weeping. And his mother happened to come along and saw him standing there. She said, George, why are you so upset? What are you crying for? He said, Mother, I'm hearing the tramp of all of these feet going past me on this street and I'm wondering, are they trampling On the road to hell. And that bothers me. This is a great commission because it's fueled by the greatest possible motive. The Bible says in the book of Jude. Concerning this matter of evangelism. I believe it certainly applies to it. The book of Jude Verses 22 and 23. And of some have compassion, making a difference. Folks, you can make a difference. You can make a difference in the life of someone. Because of compassion for their soul. Of some have compassion, making a difference. And others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. It's as if they're already disappearing down into hell and the Lord is enabling you just in the nick of time to pull them out. That's evangelism. And God is able to use us in that way. This great commission is the greatest possible commission. Not only because it fulfills the greatest possible mission, And is fueled by the greatest possible motive. But it is a great commission because it furthers the greatest possible message. And the message is clear. It's the gospel. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news. That's what the word actually signifies. Good news. It's the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. Salvation that is based upon the greatest sacrifice that was ever made. The atoning blood of Christ. 
the greatest sacrifice by the greatest person who ever lived. And it gives the greatest hope to men and women in their greatest need. You will see here quite clearly that there is to be an urgency by the church to preach the gospel. It's something that we need to do while we're on the earth, while we have life and health and strength. I was a small boy in what you call grade school, we call it primary school. When the news came through about the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, it happened in November 1963. I know some of you weren't born then. But the tragic news of his death was obviously relayed around the world very quickly. In fact, it was within an hour of the incident happening. There was no internet in those days. When I was a child, we didn't have the availability of media, mass media, to the extent that we do now. You hear about stuff now almost before it happens. But we think about that within an hour, within an hour. Virtually everybody who lived anywhere of any significance in the world heard about the assassination of John F. Kennedy, heard about his death. And yet the good news of the death of Christ and salvation through his name has still not been told in all the world after over 2,000 years since he went to the cross. There are people who still have not heard. A great preacher called Bishop Taylor Smith once visited Westminster Abbey. As he walked down one of the aisles in the abbey, he came to the tomb of the missionary David Livingstone. And he read these words on the tomb of Livingstone. Other sheep I have. And as he stood there, Bishop Taylor Smith asked the Lord a question. Which is very worth well, well worth considering today. He said, who shall bring in those sheep if we do not offer our feet to go? At the beginning of Mark's Gospel, we see that it's, it actually call, talks about the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It refers to the coming of the Lord to the Jordan River. The Gospel ends with his church going into all the world and the Lord working with them. Now something I want to say before we come to the end of this message. We're taught here that baptism is an ordinance of the church. Look at the words of verse 16, given in connection with the commission. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. You compare that with Matthew 28, where the Lord says of those converts that are to be made, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. I know that some will have a different view because of their particular reasons, but for me the order is very important. He that believeth and is baptized. It's not he that is baptized and then believeth. I mean, I think that's very clear myself, personally. 
Why did the Lord put it like that? He that believeth, he who, he who believes, and then is baptized. And for me, the Lord said that because baptism is a way of expressing outwardly what the Lord has done for you inwardly. The washing away of your sins. Now, baptism doesn't wash away your sins. I don't care whether it's infant baptism, adult baptism, sprinkling, pouring, immersion. It does not wash away sin. We don't believe in baptismal regeneration. The baptismal water conveys no grace. As my minister used to say all the time, Baptism in itself will make you wetter, but no better. And there are people who no doubt received no benefit at all from their baptism. All it was was an outward form. People who have been washed in the waters of baptism, who have never been washed in the blood of Christ. However, it doesn't mean that baptism is to be neglected. It doesn't mean that it's not important. The public confession of Christ in that way is important. But baptism doesn't save. And I think that's really clear from what our Lord said in this text, in verse 16. Notice again how he puts it. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. The baptism is not in that sense, connected with the salvation, it is an outward form that you show forth what has happened to you spiritually in salvation. You're saved and then you're baptized. But notice the next part of the verse. But he that believeth not shall be damned. He doesn't say, he that believeth not and is not baptized. Because if he had said that, then we'd be, we would be entitled to say that baptism is essential to salvation, which it isn't. Yes, baptism is important. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. That's what damns a soul. And so, really, what the Lord is talking about here, in this instance, is the necessity of baptism, the proper ordinance of baptism, the vitality of it. But he's also talking here about the absolute necessity of belief. It's not baptism that saves you. It's believing on the Lord Jesus Christ that saves you. It's Christ's work that saves you. He that believeth not is the man that will be lost forevermore. He may have been baptized. He could have been made a member of the visible church. He could be a regular communicant at the Lord's Supper. And he can believe in his mind and heart all the leading articles of the creed. But if he hasn't got faith and trust in Jesus Christ, all of that will do him no good. We need to flee from our sins to Christ by faith and lay hold on him. That's how we're saved. So the necessity of belief is here, as well as the importance of baptism. But there's also here the certainty of banishment to hell for those who do not believe. I know it's not a very nice thing to talk about. And the words sound awful, do they not? He that believeth not shall be damned. 
That's a strong statement, is it not? There is an eternal hell for all those who persist in their unbelief and their wickedness. People who depart this world, who haven't got faith in Christ, go to hell. That's what the Lord Jesus is teaching here. And so we would say with Deuteronomy, oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would consider their latter end. Unbelievers shall be damned. That's the word. And there's so much in that particular word, damned, that I couldn't even begin to describe it. He that believeth not shall be damned. What does it mean to be damned? Well, it means to be parted from God for all eternity, to be separated from His mercy, to be separated from all the means of grace, and to be tormented. Forever and ever. And we can't water it down. We can't sugarcoat it. We can't make it to say something that it doesn't say. There's no larger hope here. There's no such thing as the Lord in the end deciding that He's going to let everybody out of hell and we'll all be living happily ever after. That's a fairy tale. That's how all the fairy tales end, don't they? And they all lived happily ever after. But that's not the gospel. As the old preacher said, there's a heaven to gain and there is a hell to shun. But I think we're in danger today of leaving that message to one side. One preacher put it like this. It seems now that the theme of rescue the perishing has almost been replaced by the emphasis that Jesus will satisfy the heart and solve your problems. To many that's the gospel. Come to the Lord and all your problems will disappear. Come to Christ and you'll have a happier life. You'll have a better marriage. Things will work out for you. Your best life now. That nonsense. It's not the gospel. The gospel's a two-edged sword. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And I would hate to think that anybody belonging to me would go out into eternity without God and without Christ. I've been at the deathbed of a lot of people during my ministry, during my life. I've seen a lot of those who profess to be believers die and I can agree with the two Wesley brothers when they were together at the deathbed of an old lady I believe it was Charles said to John our people die well but having stood by the deathbeds of my dear parents and other loved ones of mine for me to look at them and to think that they may have gone out into a lost eternity I don't think I could stick that that would be very very hard for me to deal with listen the Lord has given us this little day the Lord has given us this opportunity this time this window to make a difference the Lord said it to them but he says it to us go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature you can preach the gospel by your life yes 
But you need to preach the gospel by your lips. Sometimes you need to open your mouth and say something for the Lord. Will you be well received? Probably not. Will everybody think you're great because you tell them that they're going to hell? Obviously not. But we have to do our duty. We have to do our duty. The Lord has given us a responsibility. And may in love to souls we carry out that responsibility as the Savior has set it before us. We know that the Lord himself is the only one who can save. So as we go, may we not only preach, but may we pray that the Lord will use that which we say, that which we do, for his glory and for the salvation of souls.